Today's guest is Naomi Noor. He found out about you once you were attacked by settlers. I've been active in Musafriyat in the past two years. There was a big demonstration in a small village, Elveda, which has a road. There is a verdict that said that this is a legal way and settlers keep on blocking this way all the time. So the protest was also to open the road. And then suddenly I heard like a huge boom from the left window. I couldn't hear anything. The reaction of the police pushing me, like he literally meshed his head into his car. And It's almost as if they are a part of the attack. A day after, there was another attack. No one heard about it because it was not documented and because it was Palestinians. And they got hurt much worse than I did. The whole state is built on a premise of stealing Palestinian land. Israel is annexing the West Bank. Taking over Masafar Yatta is part of that. Hello and welcome to episode 60 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gazan Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and you can call me Mikey Intifada if you think the hallmark of a good Jew is attacking other Jews for their activism. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. And if you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. You can find us also on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes and additional one to two podcasts per week. And we're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours for our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. Today's guest is Naomi Noor. She's coming to us live from Occupied Jerusalem. She's an activist and former language teacher at Musafar Yatta. Naomi, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Hi, y'all. Nice seeing you. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. So we obviously found out about you once you were attacked by settlers in Masafariata. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, you mean about what happened? Like to tell, about the, to tell about the event itself? Yeah, the whole day leading up to it, everything that happened, and also speak to why Masafariata is so important to you after that. So I've been active in Masafariata in the past two years on a very intensive almost a daily basic like I lived there for seven months like three months and then four months I was doing a project for bringing Israelis Jews and international Jews to learn Arabic do like an intensive Arabic course and do protective presence in the area and to document settler violence and house demolitions and everything that happening there in Safariyata. I was doing a work day actually in Susia While in the same time, there was a big demonstration happening in a small village called Alveda, which has a road. There is a verdict that said that this is a legal way and settlers keep on blocking this way all the time. So the protest was also a, a, an action in trying to open the, the road and also a demonstration because everything that happened in Musafriyata and the last uh, and like the court decision to give like a green light for the army to have how to say military uh, training there that actually is going to start going to have the first training with 
live fire and heavy artillery going to start for one month doing these training in the area where where more than 1000 people live what you're saying is they're about to start shooting guns and heavy artillery into a civilian area where people are still currently living for no other reason exactly. than just like to do it yes of course the people can stay but who wants to leave when there is like live shooting all around them and they're saying that we're going to try we're going to try to minimize the the harm this is what the army said but still they're going to have live shooting in the in this area where more than 1000 people live on a daily they live there currently and so the demonstration was also to demonstrate against everything that is happening there which is of course israel is trying to lead into like it's a transfer that we are witnessing right now. It's a transfer that Israel is trying to transfer all these citizens from this area to area A. So actually I was not in the demonstration because I, I was uh, holding a work day in Susia, which is another village close to this area. This day we were collecting a lot of donations for the firing zone. We were building like a um, donation center so we were working there, we were um, trying to understand, like there were many, many, many things that came, that arrived in the past few weeks and we were organizing everything. And I was like, I was not even the back office. I was just, I was there and all my friends were in the demonstration and I was telling them, I can't join you today because it was a date that they set many weeks before and I couldn't move there and change the date. But then two of my friends called me to say, we are not allowed to go back to the demonstration. Otherwise, they will stop us. My friends were expelled from the demonstration. Two activists, they are very, they're well known to the army and the police because they are there a lot. They left them close to the illegal outpost of Mitzpeyair with a lot of settlers. And we know the area very well and we know that these settlers are extremely violent. They called me and I said, yes, okay, I will just come to pick you up and take you back to a safe place. So I arrived to the illegal outpost Mitzpeyair. And in the entrance, I saw a lot of army vehicles, like a lot of uh, police cars. And there was like a very heavy presence of the security people. And I saw the demonstration from like from, uh, from far and I was waiting for Yasmin and Itai, my friends to come to the car. I just, I arrived, I literally arrived and then I turned the car like back so we could go very uh, uh, fast. I wanted to leave the area. But by the minute I arrived, and because I'm a bit experienced with this area, I was taking pictures of what, what I see. So I took a picture of all the army and the police that I saw, and I took a picture of like a teenager boy that I saw riding his um, electric bike behind me and was looking at me. And I was like, I want to get out of here as, as fast as I can. And then Italian Yasmin came and they entered the car and we wanted to go back to the road because I went down the road so they can come in. And while I want to go back to the to the road, this uh, teenager, or maybe he's, I don't know how old is he, but this boy came and blocked my car with his bikes. And I was like, come on, please let me move. And he was just standing there like on his bikes and looking at me in a very, he was trying to, to provoke me, but I was very calm and I was like, come on, just 
let me get out of here. And then he moved a little bit and I tried to, to drive with my car and he, then he came back. Like he tried, he literally tried it. I'll hit him with my car, but I was very patient. I was like, I'm not moving. And then at the end he moved, but, but by the time he like by the time another car came like a very big car came and blocked the road so when i get back to the road i was actually blocked by another very big truck and another motorcycle and they're both just blocked my way and again i was like i was waiting and i knew that there are so many police uh, officers and and soldiers and i don't know why I, i was like okay i was just waiting and then while we were waiting, suddenly I heard like a huge boom from the left window and I couldn't hear anything in my, in my ear. And then I realized that the, there is a guy running in front of our car. And then me and Ismin looked to the right window and then we saw him taking a huge rock and just smashing this rock into our car. And that was the most terrifying thing I've ever seen in my life because we couldn't move because we were blocked from the front they actually they made it it was a trap it's called being kettled you were called you were kettled where they had you from all sides exactly and i knew that we have nowhere to go and i tried to to move back but also the settlers they were surrounding us also and i knew that if something happens to any one of them we are we're doomed like they're really trying to to make us hurt them all the time so they can go to the police um and then I drove back like a few meters. I, I knew that there were a lot of soldiers and police officers, but the reaction of the police officers, the first one who came to us was the, like one of the highest command, commanders in the Israeli army, like in this area, like he's in charge of the whole area. And his reaction was just pushing me and telling me go. Like, and he pushed me so much that actually he pushed me after the car. It was like, get into the car now, get in the car. And I was like, we just got attacked. And it was like, get into the car. And the settlers, they just ran. Like the settler who actually attacked us, he, he didn't even run. Like there's videos of him like running a little bit and then looking, observing, seeing that nothing happens and just walking back to his house. It was the first thing. And then a police officer came and his reaction was actually hitting my friend Itai. Like he literally put his head into the car like smashed his head into his car and like they just wanted us to leave and like they were acting really, really violently. Um, After like the attack, it felt just like as if they kept, like they were just keeping the attack that we already had from the settlers. It's almost as if they are a part of the attack, right? They are a continued part of the attack to let you know that that's not out of line with how they feel. And they're just going to keep it going. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also the first thing that the officer, the army officer did was going and to talk to the driver as if he was his friend. What I learned later is that this officer, he is a settler himself from the same settlement of uh, Mintz, like the judge who decided about the area, like the, who gave the, the verdict of uh, the firing zone 918. So the, the main judge, his name is uh, Mintz, David Mintz, and he's from a settlement called Dolev. And this uh, officer, he's from the same settlement. They're like, he just went to the settler and like talking to him as if they are friends. They probably are friends. Still, 
yes. I don't know why I'm still surprised when I see like settlers and police officers and police army officers like being friends. And I'm not so I'm not surprised. Like, oh my god! But I still have this like. I can't believe that this is what is actually happening right now. I feel the same way every time I watch a pig rolling shit. Just like, wow, can't believe how much they're enjoying this, huh? (laughs) Yes, except for, I don't know, I live, I think I somehow still have, I don't have faith. It's not that I trust in any kind of way this place, like this state but I still do have to do things according to the law. I have to do things according to the law. Like if I break the law, I get punished. You were very scared of breaking the law or like injuring those settlers who were trying to put themselves in harm's way in front of your car, right? But there's a different like set of laws for the illegal settlers who enact violence on Palestinians and Jews protesting with Palestinians, right? On June 19th, two Palestinian women sustained wounds because they were run over by Israeli settler who rammed into them while taking part of an anti-occupation protest. The witnesses say that the Israeli settler drove his vehicle into the two sisters, causing them injuries. The two who come from the town of Deir al-Assad were hospitalized and their condition was described as stable. Violence by Israeli settlers against Palestinian civilians and Jewish allies is commonplace and is almost never prosecuted by the Israeli occupation. The Israeli occupation forces released the colonial settler who ran his car over those two girls within like 24 hours, basically. Exactly, he was released before the girl was released from the hospital. He Wild. was released from the police station and this girl is still hospitalized. Like, and I'm shocked, but I'm not surprised. Why wouldn't he be released, right? I mean, the whole state is built on a premise of stealing Palestinian land. And in all aspects and branches of the government, whether it be the judiciary, the executive, legislative, whatever it may be, the security, the police, whoever you're talking about that represents the state is going to implement that singular purpose. So, I mean, there's no reason for them to keep this guy. Why would they keep him? He's doing, he's helping them. He's doing exactly what the state is is already doing and wants to keep doing and, and, and will continue to do, which is steal Palestinian land, expel Palestinians from their homes, take that land, and then today use it as a firing zone. And then tomorrow probably build some settlements on it for Jewish people so that you can then concentrate Palestinians into smaller and smaller enclaves. Because you mentioned yourself, Noor, that Masaf Riyata is in Area C. And if you know if you're not familiar with the area breakdowns that came out of Oslo, look into it. It's very boring and neither here nor there. But what's interesting about it is that two years ago, when the apartheid state said we're going to annex all of the West Bank, we're going to take you know we're finally going to you know put the nail in the coffin and take this last bit of historic Palestine, this 22% of historic Palestine. When they said they were going to do that, and there was this international outcry, and everyone said, oh, no, you can't possibly annex the West Bank. And they said, okay, we won't do it. But they're actually still doing it. This is part of that. This is part of that de jure annexation. This is, this is real on the ground, you know, facts on the ground that we are seeing. Israel is annexing the West Bank. 
taking over Masafir Yatta is part of that. It's an example of that. Masafir Yatta is like 50 some kilometers, square kilometers. It is just one piece of the puzzle of Israel taking more and more Palestinian land, getting rid of those Palestinians. Now, like you said, their hope is that they will then move them somehow to area A where there's like more densely populated Palestinian communities, right? And then, you know, in a, in, in a few years, nobody will even remember that there was Masafir Yatta. Nobody, nobody will even remember that these Palestinians were here. And it'll be turned into, it'll either stay a firing zone for the occupation's purposes, or they will build some new Jewish communities on there and there will be a new settlement. And so they are rewriting the map of Palestine all the time. And so there's no reason for this guy to be held because he's doing exactly what the apartheid state wants. They let him go and they said, keep up the good work. Absolutely. I felt when this guy was arrested because it was so popular, like it went viral, the video, because we had this like something documented that like hard that people actually saw the violence. And then like the whole, uh, I don't know, everyone was like, who is this guy? We must stop this guy. Uh, like we need like even the uh, Omar Balev, like the, what his work, his job is like the, Minister, Ministry of uh, Security, Inner Security. I don't know what's his name. Uh, what is uh, whatever? One of the government. We, one we of super the don't care. Yeah. yeah. One of the anyway, like, he even like tweeted about that, and I was like putting everything about this guy. It's like it's just like it's not about this guy. Yeah, that's it's not PR, about this. That's, yes, yes, but no. And I feel like put like pointing this guy out as he is the extremist look what he's done and like no he like there were so much army and police and everyone was there and he just did what like what they want him to do and I feel that this even like of course I don't feel sorry for him but I'm like okay thank you for like arresting him but they didn't arrest the other people of course and they will not arrest like a day after there was another attack from the same outpost, but no one heard about it because it was not documented and because it was Palestinians and they got hurt much worse than I did. Like they yeah. got, like they hit them with a, how do you say Like with this, with sticks in their heads and like they were like really, really, really badly injured and like no one cares. And it's the same, I was about to say fucking, but it's the same, they are not criminals by the, Israeli state like they serve the interests of the apartheid state to steal this land and they're just like they really do a great job they really help you know one of the things that you've identified is how the apartheid state's PR machine works and it is very intentional that you have apartheid ministers that are tweeting about this incident trying to call it out. Oh, let's find him. Let's, you know, uh, hold him accountable. It's engineered to make you believe that there is a difference between the actions of this settler and the apartheid state. Who's going to arrest the Supreme Court? The Supreme Court is the one that handed down the so, so-called decision deciding thousands of Palestinians from Masafir Yatta would be uh, ethnically cleansed. Is anyone going to arrest the Supreme Court? Who's going to hold accountable the occupation, quote unquote, soldiers that are there physically carrying out the, the, the order of the Supreme Court and enforcing it? Who's going to do that? 
right? So what it, it, it is really um, important for us to always pay attention to what's actually happening, right? An apartheid minister can come out and say, oh yeah, we have to hold this guy accountable. This is unacceptable, this violence against people. Okay, but what is the state actually doing? The state has judges that are settlers themselves. That's a problem, right? And, and like you said, you see, you see the settlers befriend and get cozy with the occupation soldiers. They're one and the same. You can't even tell them apart. Right? They they serve the same interest. They, they are there for the same reason. They are they are both armed, right? Birds yeah. of a feather steal Palestinian land together. Right, exactly. It's very clear if you have half a brain cell what is happening when you know you have these moments where the apartheid state, somebody will come out and and, and denounce settler violence for like two seconds. They're trying to differentiate themselves to, to create some distance between themselves and the settler that acted out in such a way as to garner international attention. So they have to quickly put some space between that so that nobody will realize that the entire project, the entire state itself is a settlement. Right. Even when the ADL came out and they were like, hey, can you guys tone down the terrorism? That'd be great because we're having trouble lying on your behalf in America. And then like even Yair Lapid was like, we've got to stop the terrorism. And it's like, yeah, you right. are the terrorism. What do you mean? Stop the ter- what are you going to deactivate your Twitter account and kill yourself? What are you talking about? Zionist firing zones occupy 20 percent of the occupied West Bank. Okay, so 20% of Palestinian land, which is universally recognized as occupied under international law, has already been turned into firing zones for the, for the use of the occupation. Masafariyata is just one mere example of this. What do you do when the place where you live, all of a sudden you wake up one day and there's soldiers outside and they're shooting shooting guns they're they're firing their their automatic weapons they are you know they've turned your neighborhood into a place where they can just shoot indiscriminately what do you do i mean you i mean i i just i can't even fathom you know people always ask palestinians to show incredible restraint when confronting and reacting to the realities of their lives but it's, it's a level of restraint that nobody in this world would show if confronted with the same situation. Because it's so absurd. I just wake up tomorrow and there's, there's, an, there's an army and then there, it's a firing zone and I can't go downstairs. I can't go to the supermarket. I can't go to the baker. My child's, you know, daycare. And you were a teacher in Masafariyata. So you, you had, you know, a language center. You were teaching classes. Like the whole thing is gone. Checkpoints. You can't get out of your. And to train all those occupation soldiers to do what? To do like what they did when they murdered Shireen Abu Akla? That's what they're training to do. That's what those, those exercises are for. They're training them to use those weapons. On who? On Palestinians? On people who support Palestinians? On people who believe that the indigenous people of Palestine have the right to remain and, on their land and exist on their land with dignity? People on- who dare tell their stories? On Jordanians, on Syrians, on native people everywhere trying to hold on to their land and resources. And it's like, do they really need more firing guns? Like, is that is that where they're lacking right now? Is anybody like think of Israelis and be like, man, they don't have enough practice with guns. You know how much weapon Israel sells? 
I feel people like people like to Israel is one of the top and yeah. people like to buy things been been tested not been exactly yes. and the way Israel is so high in the in the in sales of weapons which is extremely like comparing to Israel's like to the amount of people living here and to the amount of weapons selling that is coming out from Israel it's insane you're talking about the gun sales within the occupation or the like weapons no, that are exported okay export, got you, got you. Export, uh, exporting yeah uh, that's what I was talking about Israel. when I was saying they're trying to fight any and all indigenous movements holding on to their resources right they're exporting to Latin America they are exporting like tactics as well and mercenaries and trying Technology. to yeah just trying to destabilize areas where they can then swoop in and steal the resources there are numerous times in history where we've heard they were firing outside and we couldn't leave we were scared we were like we had we had to flee right that's from the nekba right they were firing outside we had to run that is from the pogroms in the 1940s, they were firing outside, we had to leave, right? That, I mean, Mark Twain, he said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. And so we keep seeing these reintroductions of terrorism and genocide and these I mean, what what do you call it when when people start firing outside of your house, right? What do you what do you call that? In Jewish history, we call it a pogrom. There used to be a time when I used to live in the South Suburban Hills, and there was like a tradition of Shabbat that got the name of pogrom of Shabbat. That every Saturday, almost every second Saturday in the afternoon, they were like bunch of settlers coming to the Palestinian village and just doing a pogrom and it was I mean it's not funny but it just got this name like the pogrom of Shabbat did you see the last pogrom of Shabbat and we were saying like is there going to be a pogrom of Shabbat this Shabbat because it was it just repeated itself and it it's nothing else than a pogrom like they would like break into villages and then they would break all the windows and throw stones and like just smash everything and there were so many things happening like one by another and like no one did anything from the army from the police so also whenever people say oh whatever happens in the west bank and all the settlements and all the settlers it's a real problem it's like they are not a problem Apparently, Israel is the problem. They're just serving what the governments want from them. And they're just like the soldiers that don't wear the uniforms, but they're completely part of the system. And the same as like the set, the, the army is part of the system, the settlers are part of the system. And you can't be in the army and not be part of the apartheid that Israel does. You can't stand it when people separate what happens in the West Bank from 48. It's just like doing like this. Oh, it's really bad what is happening there. And like, no, it's what you are doing. Such a crucial point that you make that we've made on the podcast before, but it's important to hear it from you, I think. The connection and interconnection between the state, 
the military, the courts, the settlers, it's all interconnected. And they're all working hand over fist together in a coordinated fashion. We've even seen where the settlers are like shot calling to the military, telling them where to go, right? Like they're somehow above the military. Didn't what? we see one time when a settler was like beating a soldier? Yes, attacking a soldier physically. And the soldier was just like trying to keep him at bay, but not using, I think they might've used some pepper spray, but they were reluctant about it. Whereas if it was a Palestinian, they'd be dead. If it was a Palestinian- yeah, there, there are videos of like settlers throwing stones and the soldier's like, oh, please stop. And like, yeah. if it was a Palestinian, they would just shoot him in his head. The main thing- for living is water and to have a house, like to have a shelter. And Israel gives everything for the settlements and for the illegal outposts. Like the settlements are illegal by international law and outposts are illegal by Israeli law and international law, of course. And Israel gives, they supplies everything like water, like I saw by my own eyes, like after like there is a hill, then they bring this caravan in a week, within a week, there is a road that going up to this hill and there is a very thick pipe of water going to this hill while they cut uh, water pipes and they destroying roads and they destroying houses for Palestinians. So saying that the uh, Israel state is like against settlers, it's like they're doing everything in order to make settlers and settlements being built and to destroy Palestinians' life. And you can see it by like the most basic basic thing, which is water, like preventing water in all these villages, like the Palestinian villages where they don't have water and then bring waters by tracks, which is like, it's not double the price. It's like seven times more expensive than in other places. And you see by these Palestinian villages, very thick pipes of waters that go only, only to settlements. Stealing it from our communities and siphoning it to illegal settlers. It's Absolutely. more water and they are giving it to people who they don't have the right to give it to. And who don't have the right to be there. So one more point about the, the settlers and the army though is that you're right. The army is the official hitmen of the occupation, but the settlers are the unofficial hitmen of the occupation. They don't wear the, the uniform. They are not subject to the so-called military law, which almost never holds the soldiers accountable anyways. They don't have as much like blowback because the government is like, oh, well, they're not us, right? They're a just, you know, a radical settler and they are just you know uh they're rogue uh, they're rogue they've gone rogue they're a lone soldier we probably recruited from canada or something they they have a plausible deniability when the settlers attack people so they prefer it that way because when the army does it they realize like there's a little bit more pushback from the international community yeah, but like only a little bit because it's now been well over a month since the occupation murdered Shireen Abu Akhla. Why don't we know the soldier's name? Why don't we know his name? We have no idea who it is. My point Why is, his name? they it don't feel- It cause problems. You didn't hear what Israel said? Like it's yeah. official thing was like, oh, well, we think it might cause problems. So we prefer 
not to talk about this uh, subject anymore. That's it. No one, no one talks about it. Like today, I read that the New York Times just published that, like, there are proofs that it was like the the soldiers shoot like it's from from the spot where the soldiers were, and there were no gunned people where Shireen said as like the IOF says. And it was like, I saw it somewhere there in the newspaper down, like, you know, like this on the side. No one cares. It's insane. Yeah, my point is they don't have to take calls from the United States State Department when the settlers murder people. They do have to take calls when the occupation soldiers murder Shireen, right? Their phones were blowing up and that was annoying for them. Days. About it. <laughs> they prefer days they, that's it i mean literally that's their only annoyance is like they had to take phone calls where people were like stop murdering journalists on tv and they were like yeah another day at the office classic classic case of the mondays you know what i mean fuck Hey, just keep that money coming, baby. We don't give a fuck what you have to say. Noor, you were talking about how you used to teach in Masafariyata. You were teaching Arabic and you were bringing, I assume, anti-Zionist Israelis there for the purposes of protection. Can you talk a little bit about that, what you would do and and why it's so important that you were there? Yes, so this project was... uh combination and a collaboration of few different people. There was the need for uh, Jews to learn Arabic and there was the need for protective presence. Uh, we started at the time of uh, COVID and so there were no people in the area. There used to be international coming and doing more protective presence and going uh, with the kids from Tuba. I don't know if you know the story, there's this small village called Tuba and they need to get into the bigger village called Twani and they're on the road, there is the illegal outpost and they've been attacked so many times. So by Israeli uh, court, there is a decision saying that they must be, they must be accompanied by the army. But the army not always coming. So we're used to be there used to be this Italian doing uh, the accom- accompaniment. Accompaniment. Yeah, the Italian needs to be the accompaniment for the kids and to also to document what is happening in the area. But then COVID came and the, the Italians were like, we're gonna go back to Italy where it's terrible. <laughs> where it's the, the worst. Italians we're gonna we're gonna take our chances in Italy where COVID is the worst. That's where we're gonna go. See you later. Something like that. And I always saw the need for a political Arabic course because unfortunately most Israelis, they don't speak Arabic. And if they do, usually it's connected to the army or to the Shabak or like all to these very bad things. And I was really annoyed that there is no political course that also talks about power dynamic and what does it mean as an Israeli Jewish girl to learn this language and how can I do it in a way that does not implicate the same power dynamic that I already have and how to do it in a way that I can use it as a tool as I want to use it and to change and not I don't want to use the language and to use the people I want to change myself through the language and it means that I have to be surrounded by Palestinians and to cross not the physical borders, but like the mental 
like to break the mental. So yeah, because there are no physical since borders. Since I speak, I, I speak, I yeah. teach Arabic and I teach Hebrew, and my like when I speak English, I feel that my brain is like, no, you're gonna, you're not gonna talk about another language, like and also Spanish. So when I try to look for a word, I have like three different options. That's okay. That's okay. Through. You're doing. You're doing. You're great. doing a great job. <laughs> but what you were saying, yeah. you were trying to say like the mental prison, the mental gates that you were in. Yeah. So we were try- so me and my friend, we were trying to create this different course, which it has also a different ped- ped- pedagogical, pedagogical. How do you say? Pedagogical, pedagogical. Yeah. All right, now you're just showing off. What the fuck? You know what I mean? <laughs> Dude, you're like, I can't speak English, also pedagogical. No, in Hebrew, it's, in Hebrew, it's like pedagogy. Like, it's, I know the word in Hebrew, pedagogy. It's very close. So to have an intensive Arabic course that also pedagogical will be different, but also in terms of what are we doing? What are we learning when we learn the language? And what do we learn about ourselves? And what do we learn about our, about our history? And why is it so sensitive? to learn Arabic as an Israeli Jewish girl or man, whatever. So we started this program when we brought, it was a pilot project. We brought about 10 Israelis and later on they came another seven internationals. We're from the organization CJNV. You heard of them? CJNV, Center for Jewish Nonviolence. It's an organization that works here, mostly in South Suburban Hills. Oh, wait, actually, is, have... is, uh, is Lexi a part of that? Lexi, yes, there is oh, yeah. Lexi. Yeah, I know Lexi, yeah. ATL and CJNV, they're like all that's left. And I didn't know them before, so I, yeah. I'm not very familiar with the American Jewish side of like anti-Zionism thing. I was more... more uh, What's up? Uh, I'm holding it down here. over here. <laughs> yeah, I realized. So it was v- very um progressive thing to do to bring a group of Israelis and international to live in the South Serbon Hills and to have a program that had also Arabic lessons. Uh that there were a group of uh well, <laughs> the, the, the settlers are like, we're progressive as fuck, baby. We've been living in the South Hebron Hills for a while. <laughs> well, they're quite progressive. Do you think? Do you think that we didn't think like, oh my God, are we are the new settlers? Inside the Palestinian villages. <laughs> hold, hold, hold on, though, a sec. Talk about how you were received by Palestinians, because I think it's important that people understand. Yes. So, this is a very important point that we came into an area that someone made the road for us. Like we didn't make this road like there were many organizations not many but there were organizations that worked there before as cgnv and a very important group they are not an organization called taayush it's a group of uh, people that come every saturday and what they're doing is uh, accompanying shepherds and doing whatever the people from the area need and they document everything as well and they're going every saturday over 20 years so they build a lot of connections and most important, a lot of, a lot of trust. So we got to the area, me and another uh, three friends that were my partners. 
for the project. And first of all, we had many conversation and we talked about it. How would it be to have a group of Israelis inside a Palestinian village? It's not taking for granted, he said. It's not taken for granted at all. It's not obvious at all. And we talked a lot and we had so many conversations and we really, we checked every participant really deeply, his background or her background. And we made sure like the first group was a group that we completely trust because we know that bringing Israelis to live in a Palestinian villages is extremely sensitive. It was so special. It was a thing I, I didn't know what to expect because we said, okay, we're gonna go there. We're gonna learn Arabic every day. There are uh, eight women from the area that we trained to be uh, Arabic teachers as well. That was another part of the project. We're gonna do protective presence, whatever that means. And we didn't imagine that this is what's gonna happen. So we did learn Arabic that was part of it, but what, uh, what actually happened that we, every day we had so many calls because uh, settler violence just increased in, uh, by that time, now it increases all the time, but it was like a high, uh, like a very high um, increasing. And yeah, almost the, every the day, numbers keep going up. It's like the opposite of Bitcoin. Yes, exactly. But that time was <laughs> every day we had lessons, Arabic lessons, and then we had calls. We had things we knew before, like if a shepherd would go to herd his flock. So if it's close to a settlement, usually we would go with him. And what we had is cameras and ourselves. And this is something important because it's not that we wanted to kill ourselves, but we knew that we have our bodies and the way we look, it has different value in this area. And we wanted to use the fact that we are more privileged and the fact that we can risk ourselves more. And the fact that if we would be a Palestinian, they would shoot us immediately. And the fact that we can uh, confront soldiers and we can confront settlers and we can say, no, you can't be here. And of course we speak Hebrew and it's something that most Palestinians in this area, they do not speak Hebrew and they can't understand. They, they are belong to a system. They're under the military occupation uh, law system and under the under everything that in the language that they don't understand, like if a Palestinian go from from 67, if a Palestinian from 67 going to a court, he will be in a court in language that he doesn't understand. The judges will be from the IOF. They be from like the uh, there will be soldiers, and everyone will speak Hebrew. So, being there and being able to change the power dynamic in a very weird way and understanding what the uh, the soldiers say and like tell them no you can't do that and actually reading the maps and being able more to to confront with them um it's something that we wanted to use at, at the beginning it worked more <laughs> at the beginning they were surprised like who are they they were like and then very soon they got to know us and they tried to make us go from there so they were really looking for us and they were really, really like trying to arrest us to prevent us from being in the area. Also, we, we started to have a really deep connection with Palestinians living in this area. And that was very, very special. And I think this thing couldn't happen if the students wouldn't learn Arabic as well, because it's nice to have connection and all of that, but learning the language is actually enable people to, to have different, different relationships. And also when you learn a language, you lose your power. Like 
when you learn a language, in a new language, you can't be as, at the beginning, you can't be as, as confident as it used to be and you need to listen more and you need to like you getting out of your comfort zone and getting out of your comfort zone in this kind of situation is something that creates a lot of also a lot of trust yeah it's not that i'm learning arabic in a very sterilic way which is usually what is happening usually people in arabic and they're like mm, i learned arabic but i don't have who to practice with because yeah, we live in a in segregation, and you're afraid of Palestinians. So of course, you, learn Arabic <laughs> and you, don't, you don't know any Palestinian. So there, the students would speak with the kids. They would work. They would help. And also, I think from the Palestinian side, they would see a group of Israelis and Jews that they just come and they are there. They are present. They are willing to go and to risk themselves in order to help them. And this is something that people, many times people don't understand. They're like, how do they trust you? First of all, they don't have, they don't, don't have no one, like no one is going there. Even Palestinians, like most Palestinians that don't know about this area. It's a very neglected area and it's part of the reason why it's so easy to make their life miserable because Yes, also in East Jerusalem, in Sheikh Jarrah, like they are like ruining people's life in Anisawiya, but all everyone is looking at them, like it's inside a city, people know them. And then in South Sudan Hills, like no one cares about these people, no one heard about these people. And then they see a group of people coming and saying, like, yeah, we are here to we are here to support and we want to help. And of course, it has a lot of problems as well and problematics because it's a bit problematic because we would go at some point, yeah. We're we're not gonna live there. So also like having this like weird relationship of literally we can go out and you can't like this is maybe the top of the apartheid this place that we can come and be present and we can live in any moment and they can't they have nowhere to go so by the time and unfortunately by also very violent uh, incident that happened there was a lot of trust be built between us and to the citizens of the Masafariata area we've been attacked many times by settlers and we've been through many things also with police and also with the army and they saw us like i slept in a house once when there was a night raid and soldiers came and then I opened the door and there were like soldiers there with a gun. They were trying to arrest someone, which is also like, it's a tact tactic, you say? It's like a, like arresting people at night. There is no need. <laughs> there is no need for that. Like people, if they get a letter or a call from the police, they would just go. But like riding into a village in the middle of the night and waking everyone up with guns and with lots of army and soldier it creates also fear and it's like it's a tactic of the army also to keep people always under fear and then like the the soldiers they like opened the door and then they saw me and i was filming everything and the other house when they opened the door and another boy he was feeling they just like pushed him to the ground they just like really bit him really hard and broke his camera so of there is there is difference and I, like I feel bad about that, but I know I can't just ignore this. The, the, I can't ignore the fact that I live in 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 a place. I live in a state that puts more value on my body than on a Palestinian body. 
And if I can use it, document and to show what is happening and to show all the crimes that apartheid Israel does, I would I will I will use it. And it's not that again, it's not that I want to sacrifice myself and I'm not I'm afraid of settlers. I'm afraid of settlers much more than I'm afraid of soldiers. I know that soldier, soldiers, they will not shoot at me. Settlers, they, they could very easily. Like last week, it was a chance that the rock hit my hand and not my face. And yeah. he was also, he was armed. Like he had gun in his uh, pants, this guy. Yeah, last week it was a rock. Next week, it'll be a gun. You know what I mean? They are, they do like to escalate. Yeah, and they do that and they have full support, full support. The fact that only one guy was arrested, it's only because one guy was documented. Yeah, there was another three guys in the frame and they were just like, "Mm, no, we decided not to arrest them. That is so wild. I'm old enough to remember a time when Jews were against pogroms. It's so annoying how like they feel so strong and powerful. They're like, we have the the baddest millet. We we're we're the bad. And it's like, dude, remember when Jews identified with David and not Goliath? I really feel that learning history and learning about the Holocaust, especially because it's such a big part of our history um, syllabus in high school really made me see how the settlers and Israelis are just being like, as, I don't know if I can say Nazis, but yeah, I feel, and I'm really afraid because I really, I look at what is happening and I was like, it just, it's so familiar and it's so familiar. It's not that I feel like mm, it's similar to something else that I, it's like, it's familiar with like, I feel that you're doing what we've been going through. And I feel, oh my God, we learned so well. We learned really well how to do programs. We learned really well how to be fascist and how to go into, a, like, I'm looking at what about the situation, like how is, how no one is shouting? How, how, how can it be that no one is like getting stand up and like, we must stop and like, yeah, look at Germany. Like, yeah, and you're not wrong at all. We've talked about this on the pod before, how the Israeli government actually studied the Warsaw ghetto from the perspective of the Nazis so that they could replicate it on Gaza. Right. And that's exactly what they've done. Let's talk about your family history and your journey towards anti-Zionism. Can you tell us about that? Yes, of course. Uh, so first of all, I grew up as a very normative kid, means I was Zionist because you're a Zionist by, it's like the, not by choice, it's just the default when you're born into this place. And I grew up in a family that was quite leftist and it was, they, well, they were not radicals, but the fact that I had Palestinian friends, like my family had Palestinian friends from Quite a young age, I was exposed to Palestinians in my life, which again, we live in segregation. We live in segregated cities and segregated schools. So I had, I didn't have any connection with Palestinians until I was 17. And then I joined, I joined a a band. Yeah, I'm also a musician. I started, I was always playing. 
So I joined like a project of Israelis, Jews and Arabs playing together. And, and then I started to have my first Palestinian friends at the age of 17, which is quite irregular. And I remember the first time after our independence day that I met my Palestinian friends and I was like, oh yeah, we're going out this night, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, actually, I can't stand this day. This day makes me feel really bad. Like, really, why? And then she started telling me, and then she told me about the Tikva, the national anthem, that she can't hear this, the national anthem. And for me, it was, oh, really? I didn't know. Like, I had no idea. And I was going, like, my politicization process took me a few years. Yeah, it started from when I was 17. And I joined the army when I was... 19 and I quit the army in the middle like in Israel it's really hard not to be part of the army and again not because of the law of the state but the law of society and by society everyone has to go to the army and if you're not going to the army you are betraying your uh, what on your uh your nation your nation yeah and I felt like I started and I felt how, how brainwashed I was. And I started to see how brainwashed I am. And I started to feel crazy. I was like, how can it be? How can it be? And I have Palestinian friends. And how can it be that I do these things? And I did nothing that has to do with... Uh, I was a teacher in the army, yeah? And I was like, I, I, there is no difference. There is no difference if your job in the army is to clean or to make coffee or to cheat, to teach Hebrew or actually to really work people off. Or if your work in the army is to be a soldier that stands in checkpoints or to be a soldier that doing uh, night raids, you are from the same system and you are from, you, you serve the same apartheid state and you're part of the whole system and you can't separate between the things. And I understood it in a, pretty young age which caused me a lot of a lot of uh, not problems but a lot a lot of confusion and a lot of I felt very lonely and I think that this is again it's not by coincidence that looking at the system from the side and understanding that we are being brainwashed the reaction is to feel lonely I think that this is the power of of the state it's like if you if you dare to say something against that you feel alone and the fact is that we are not alone like there are more people than we think that are like us and there are so less people that are actually willing not willing but they have the courage to speak out and I think that this is something very important because when I started to speak out and to speak out loud about what I'm doing I thought more and more people and I was like why everyone is so afraid and we are so afraid because we feel so lonely and we don't want to ruin our life just to say that we are against Israel or that we think that Israel is an apartheid state or that we think that Palestinians deserve rights by the years I started to have more and more friends that were radical and I felt more comfortable to speak out loud because at the beginning I wouldn't speak oh just like it was very, very inner process that I was going through and I felt that I can't trust anyone from my family and I felt that 
not that I can't trust them, but I felt that they would not understand me because I felt that like, as I started to see the reality in a way that how, how can I explain? Because it's, it's emotional. Like I have Palestinian friends. You don't have Palestinian friends. When you talk about these things, you don't have faces. I have faces. I have names. I have, it's like a lot of emotions. And I think that this is also something, the only thing that can make a change is to have emotions. Because if you think from the head, like if you think, oh yeah, the situation should change, but you don't either, you need to have to change the situation. Like if your life can, like if your life depends on that, you would act to change. Or if you have emotional involvement into things, because otherwise people, they can care from their head, but they would just, they will give up after a while. I got so used to it and I need to remind myself that people needs to go through this, this process of un, like, there is a breakdown in a certain identity here. People who live here in order to change, they're going to go through a breakdown. They're going to go to like, they're going to break everything they, because we grew up on so many lies. And there is this stage of thing, feeling betrayed, like, oh, this is actually, this is not what I learned. I didn't know that the same of this village is so similar to a Palestinian village because we actually made everyone leave their houses and then they didn't leave. We made, like we, we made them leave, yeah? Like there is this very strong narrative for Israelis, like they just left. Lara, anything else? The Palestinian man who was executed near the apartheid wall, he is from Nablus and his name is Nabil Ahmed Ghanim. He's 53 years old and he was on his way to work when out of nowhere, the occupation opened gunfire at him and shot him and he died instantly. And as per usual, the apartheid state is now holding his body hostage in an Israeli hospital in Kfar Saba. There's a family somewhere now in Palestine in Nablus that is hurting very, very, very deeply because their father went to work and he never came home because the occupation soldiers just decided to have a little fun. And now his body will be assigned a number and put into a fridge, presumably, and never returned to his family. Or maybe they'll return the wrong body like they've done before. Or maybe they'll just return a sack of bones in a few months. Who knows? But that's that's what we're dealing with. That's Israel. Just democratic things, I suppose. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Palestine Pod. We really appreciate you, your perspective, and all the work that you're doing. Keep it up. I know it's tough, and I appreciate that you're putting your body on the line. The world will respect that in history, if not in the present. Thank you for having me, and thank you for your work. Thank you so much. It's really important. Thanks. Folks, that's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Go ahead and find all of our episodes and sources at www.palestinepod.com. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at thepalestinepod. And check us out on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash palestinepod. That's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day. Do-do.